Um, our scripture this morning is First uh, Peter, First Peter one. We're going to look at the first two verses. Um, as you turn there, um, just by way of introduction to the text, um, I, many of you may have seen the show Brooklyn Nine Nine. Um, it's kind of in the same vein as The Office and Parks and Rec and, and shows like that. But in that show, there are two of the main characters um, are framed for a crime and they're and they're sent to prison. Um, and during their time there, their friends and coworkers they come to to visit them and to assure them that look they're working tirelessly to get them to, to get them set free. And during one such visit, the captain of the precinct, Captain Raymond Holt, uh, visits Rosa Diaz. And as he's speaking with her, um, Captain Holt just starts saying her name relentlessly. She, he goes, "Pay no attention to him, Rosa. He's very emotional, Rosa." And, and she goes in very deadpan, as, as her character is, very deadpan, says, why are you saying my, my name like that? Why are you saying my first name? Because she's so used to hearing um, him call her Diaz. And Captain Holt goes, well, Rosa, I read in a me- medical jur- journal that one of the destabilizing aspects of incarceration is the constant dehumanization, Rosa. You may need to be reminded that you, you are more than just a number, Rosa. You are Rosa, Rosa. And she just looks at him and goes, yep, that fixes prison. Uh, the conversation continues, and he's peppering her name throughout the conversation until eventually, at the very end of the scene, he reaches out to touch the glass to offer just a little bit more um, humanization. And on her, on his palm, Rosa. Um, and you know, it, that's that's all well and good, and it's funny. But what he what he's trying to do in that scene, and what they're getting at, is trying to ground her identity uh, in her person, in her humanity. Um, he, he has this fear that while in prison, her number and therefore her uh, supposed crime would replace who she is as a person, who she inherently is. And, and this is a real thing. This actually happens. People who have been in prison for extended period of times um, often lose a bit of who they are um, and they get lost in the shuffle of a system that, again, oftentimes um, don't view them as a person, but view them as a number, um, not as a person, but as a thief, as a, a drug dealer, as a, as a bank robber. Um, the behavior that, that put them in prison becomes their identity. Um, and it's not just in prison where this happens, but also it, ha- it happens every day, whether it's at your work, at school, um, in parenthood, in singleness. Um, our circumstances can very, very quickly take over um, who we are if we're not careful. They can take over um, our identity, and, and it's, and this is what our our text speaks to: not rooting our identity in our name, not rooting our our identity in our circumstances, but ultimately rooting our our identity in what God has done for us. So, uh, with that, let's um, turn to God's Word again. First Peter chapter one. We're going to read the first two verses. This is this is God's Word. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. We pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you and read your word um, and hear your word preached. Lord, I pray that as we go now, 
to the preaching of your word, that you would get me out of the way, um, that there would be no distraction, but we would hear your, God, hear your word, um, and it would, it would change us. It would work in our hearts, it would work in our minds, um, and it would, it would change our behavior, Lord, that we would follow you more um, with more zeal than ever. Uh, be with us, Father. It is in your Son's precious and holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so a little background on this letter as I'm jumping in straight into 1 Peter. Uh, Peter, as he's writing, is most likely in Rome. Um, in, later in the letter, he, he refers uh, to something called the woman of Babylon or the woman in Babylon, um, and that's at chapter 5, verse 13. And, and since we know that Babylon had long been reduced to rubble, uh, scholars, are, scholars believe that he's referring to Rome. Um, since this is the, the center of Roman persecution in the church, much in the same way that Babylon was the center of uh, Israelite persecution in the Old Testament. Um, and as we will see in our text, Peter makes lots of um, allusions to how the church is ultimately the new Israel. So Peter is in Rome, he's writing from Rome to, um, to these Gentile Christians elsewhere, um, now, given the, the various clues in the letter, Paul probably wrote this before Nero began severely persecuting the church. Um, however, the, the, there was a lot of sporadic, um, however very intense uh, persecution throughout the kingdom, throughout the empire, um, and, uh, and, and it was just very much overlooked by the governors, by the, by the government. And um, it was mostly inspired because of their, the Christians' connection with the Jews um, and how they were often very rebellious people. And so the people were treating Christians, whether they were Gentile, whether they were Jewish by, by their heritage or not, they were, treat, they were treating them as, as Jewish, and therefore they were, they were persecuting them. But then as Peter's writing, he's in this very unique time where the church, the Christian church, has begun to become identified as, as its own entity. So the outside world was looking at it as, oh, these are just more Jews. Um, and within the synagogue, within the Jewish world, they were like, no, no, they, these, these aren't us. They, they, aren't, they aren't like us. And so the Christian church was really getting persecuted from both sides. Um, it wasn't just the, 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 the Roman Empire. It wasn't just Gentiles persecuting, but, but truly um, both. And so Peter... Uh, is writing to this this really specific time, this particular um, time where Christians were ex- were experiencing grave persecution, and he writes to them uh, to encourage them and to give them some instruction in how to flourish in the Lord um, despite their circumstances. And it's here within these these two short verses, uh, this this greeting that he comes in hard and fast, speaking over them God's blessing. And, he, and he's doing something very, very incredible in that, it, and it really is a blink and you miss it moment, in that Peter is, um, is encouraging these brothers and sisters in his faith not, um, not just as a, hey, the Lord loves you, it's, it's all going to be okay, but Peter is, is, is rooting their, their very identity um, in the Lord. In, in one sentence, albeit a complex one, like if you go back, it's one sentence. Peter's connecting uh, the believer's identity not to their circumstances, not to the persecution that they're facing, um, not to their interests, not to their socioeconomic, sta- uh, their socioeconomic um, 
standpoint or anything like that. No, he's, he is connecting their, their identity to what God has done for them. The most important thing about us, uh, likewise, is not our circumstances. It's not even who we are as a person, who you might say you are as a person. It's not your name, your family name or your given name. No, but it's, it's what has been done for us and who we belong to. And that's Peter's point. So in our, within our text, we find three ways um, in which our identity is solely found in God. And because we find our identity in God in these three ways, we have three reasons to follow Jesus. So let's look at our text and, and parse that out a little bit. So Peter says, he calls these people, elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see, he calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. And in so doing, um, he's connecting them to the nation of Israel, um, who, were, who were famously dispersed by the Babylonians um, in the Old Testament. And he's saying, you, you people who I'm writing to, you elect exiles who are out in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and, and Bithynia and all these other places, you are the, the elect exiles. You are now the people of God. You Gentile believers are God's children. He's rooting their, their very identity in that saving work that God has done for them, for, that God has done for them, and connects that back to the nation that God had established all the way back in Genesis with the calling of Abraham. It, it's, it's very easy to, to miss just how profound what Peter is saying is here. Like it, it, this, is, this is truly, truly profound because he's writing to a mostly Gentile audience. Even though Peter was the apostle to the Jews, you know, Peter, the, the one who had to be publicly called out by Paul because he was being too Jewish, he was writing to these Gentiles. Uh, Paul referred to Peter in Galatians 2 as sent to the circumcision, so sent to the Jews. The one who was, who was shocked when God gave him a vision, he was shocked that God would command him to eat food that wasn't kosher, like that guy. He's saying, hey, you Gentiles, you are the elect. You are the nation of God. He's right, this, this man's writing to Gentiles in what is today modern Turkey, right? And he's saying, you are the chosen of God the Father. Like saying this, saying God chose you before the foundation of the world according to his foreknowledge. To Peter, this means that they, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, big deal, these are his brothers and sisters in Christ. And this enables him to pronounce grace and peace and abundance over them. It's not just profound because he's writing to Gentiles, no, but it's also profound because Peter is saying that God has chosen you not based on your behavior, not based on some like secret proclivity towards accepting him or some other uh, mysterious factor that we don't know about, but, a, but God chose you based on his own divine will. You see, God's, God's foreknowledge cannot be divor- divorced from God's sovereignty, what he knows he wills and what he has willed for his people is that they would be saved. And when Peter calls these non-Israelites the elect, he is saying that God took the initiative to save them and to bring them into his family. He's grafting in, uh, uh, he's grafting in new branches, as it were. And here's the beautiful thing is this is true of us as well. God takes the initiative to save 
us, just like he took the initiative with these, these Gentile believers in modern-day Turkey. He takes the initiative with us as well. He grafts us into his family. He loves us. And so we should follow Jesus because he took the initiative to save us and to place us in his family. You see, this, this all gets back to the, you know, this kind of scary, at times, um, doctrine of predestination. And in this doctrine of predestination, it often gets a, a bad rap as somehow stripping us of our, of our free will. But that's really not what it's about. So you see, at the heart of this doctrine is God's love for his creatures. That's what predestination is about. It is his love for you and for me. We, we all, every one of us, everyone sitting here today, member, non-member, pastor, not pastor, elder, not elder, doesn't matter. If you're sitting here today, we, we all deserve death because of our sin. We all deserve hell because of our sin. But because Christ loved us so much, knowing that we would fail, we would continue to fail in this life, even after, even after receiving the gift of faith, he still chose us. He still elected us. He still took the initiative to save us from our sins and make us members of his family. But we were exiles, not, not literally, but as the Israelites longed to return to the promised land, as they longed to return home to the land that God had promised them, Christians, as Christians, we should long to return to our family, to the, to the family of God. We are exiles in a, in a dispersion because like the Israelites didn't belong in Babylon, and just like, uh, just like the Israelites didn't belong in Babylon, we don't belong to this world. We belong to our Father who chose us. We belong in His presence the same way that Adam got to experience in the garden as they walked together in the cool of the day. And not just in the cool of the day, but in the hot afternoons, in the early mornings, at night. That's where we belong, in the presence of our Father. So God took the initiative. And now, though we live as sojourners, we long to be home because God gave us a heart that longs to be home. But it, but it doesn't end there either. No, no, he, he, just as he took the initiative to choose us, he also takes the initiative to save us. Peter writes, he says all of this, he, God, we are the elect exiles of the Spurgeon. He says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, this is, this is where things get a little complex. If, if you didn't think the doctrine of predestination was complex, well, here we go. We're going to jump into something a little bit more. When Peter says the sanctification of the Spirit... Um, he isn't talking about the sanctification um, the way that we typically think about sanctification, right? We typically think about sanctification um, as this progressive work of God, um, whereby we are made to look more and more like Christ and die more and more to sin. Like this is the progressive work of God um, for us as we have, um, a- after we have come to know him. That's how we typically think about um, sanctification. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. Uh, what Peter's talking here about here is a work that is already complete. Like the grammar here, he's saying, in the sanctification of the Spirit. This is past tense. This is fully formed sanctification. But, you may say, that sounds an awful lot like justification, right? 
Like, is it like did Peter just just make a mistake in describing Christians the Christian identity, like where he mixed up sanctification and justification, maybe threw in glorification in there because we needed another vacation. Um, we need a vacation after this, right? Um, no, no, he, he's he's not making a mistake. You see, sanctification has a much broader definition than we typically consider it. Um, here, here are the words of uh, of Sinclair Ferguson as he um, writes about this passage. He says this. We are justified in Christ by grace through faith. We are not justified on the basis of what we have accomplished either before or after we become Christians. By contrast, sanctification is something that is worked into us. We actually become holy. Despite these important distinctions, the New Testament also stresses that justification and sanctification are both ours through faith in Jesus Christ. It is therefore not possible to be justified without being sanctified and then growing in holiness. This is why, Hebrews says, sanctification is essential since without it, none of us will ever see the Lord. In order to experience final salvation, sanctification is as necessary as justification. Uh, John Calvin said in a, a fewer words when he said justification and sanctification, he says, they belong together. Because Christ was given to us for both. To separate them would be to rend him asunder. Basically, the reality is is that justification never occurs without regeneration, which is at the start of our sanctification. We, we We are sanctified. We have fully past tense, past perfect, present perfect, however you want to look at it. We have sanctification. It is so assured to God's children that we can talk about it as a present reality and not just a future guaranteed. Yes, we are being sanctified. God is making us more and more holy. Yes, we, if you are a Christian and you are actively participating in the Christian life, you will grow closer to God. You will die more and more to sin. You will look more and more like your Savior. But there's also this, this reality where we have it. It is ours. It is, it is full and it is, it, is, it is final. It's not just a future guarantee, but it is a, a present reality. And this should be a huge encouragement to us. That by saying this, Paul's rooting our identity not just in our status as God's children, not just, at, not just um, because God had brought us into his family. No, no, but he's, he's rooting our identity in that plus the fact that God is an active parent in our lives. That God is at work in us. He's rooting our identity in the work that he is doing in us and through us as he makes us more and more like Jesus. This means that our identity is not only found in what God has uh, had did um, or has done in eternity past, but what he is doing for you personally, what he has done for you personally and what he continues to do as he actively shapes your heart. This means he takes the initiative, not us, in saving us from a life that cannot satisfy. You see, left on our, uh, left on our, own, left on our own, we will always, we will always pursue things that do not satisfy. Certainly, you, you've, you've heard of the, um, the, the C.S. Lewis mud, mud pie versus the beach um, analogy where we, like we we're, we're basically in the slums making mud pies and God comes and he offers us a trip to the beach. No one in their right mind ever 
stays and says, I want to stay and make mud pies when a, when a trip to the beach is offered. Maybe we do here because we're so close, but in England, right, that, that, was never, that was never really an option. You see, the original audience would have understood that analogy very, very well. He would, they would understand what Peter is saying very, very well because God, God saved them out of pursuing some wild stuff that did not satisfy them. You see, the original audience, um, as Peter talks to them later in chapter 4, verse 3, um, Peter, Peter mentions some of the stuff that God, God saved them from. He says this, he says, Y'all were living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Like this is, this, is what they, this is what God saved them out of. And now as you're living your life for God, you're being persecuted by your neighbors because you now don't take part in those things. You, your, your neighbor doesn't realize that those things aren't really satisfying. God saved you out of these things that don't satisfy and put you in his family where, where there alone you can truly be satisfied. God had saved them from the futility of going from one event to the next, trying to, to patch the emptiness they experienced. We do this, don't we? Going from one event to the other, going from, from one job to the other. Maybe if I, if I get a promotion here, then maybe that will satisfy me. If, if my kids just behave, that I'll be satisfied. If, if, if I can have just five minutes of peace, I have two toddlers, so this is real for me. If I, if I just have five minutes of peace in my home, maybe then I'll be satisfied, right? Maybe that's you. Maybe it's, I need a, if, if, I had a, if I had a bigger boat or a bigger house, if I had a nicer car, if I drove the Tesla, whatever it is that you're pursuing to try to patch the emptiness that is in you, let me tell you right now, it won't. It can't because it's not designed to. And while God might not have saved us from something as wild and crazy as, as living in the, the, the debauched life that he saved um, these, these Christians from, he, he saved us ultimately from the same thing. And that is, pursuing, that is pursuing stuff that cannot satisfy us. His saving grace, if you're, if you're sitting here and you're a covenant child and, you, and your testimony like mine is you never knew a day without knowing the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if that's, your, if that's your testimony, God's saving grace in your life is no less profound because he saved you from the same exact thing, placing our, placing our worth, placing our identity in, in our experiences and our circumstances and our relationships and what we achieve, right? He saves us from placing our, our, our identity in something that can be taken away just like that and, and with a snap of our finger. And he reminds us that our value, who we are, lies in the value of Christ's blood. That we have been bought with something far more valuable than we can ever, ever imagine. And the price that he paid means that we can have a new lease on life. We can live according to how God has called us to live. This is why, he, this is why God did this. This is why God took the initiative. Peter says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. The price that, was, that, that he paid had many purposes, yes. But one, and I think one of the, the chief among them, is that the price that he paid was to give us a purpose. It gives us a purpose. He places you in a new covenant family and he gives you purpose. You see, the reason for our, salvation, for our election and for our sanctification, Peter says, is our obedience to Jesus Christ. 
both our election and sanctification ultimately accomplishes our obedience. You see, we begin to see the fruit of those things that he works in us. But that fruit, that fruit ultimately is a work of God's grace in our lives. The sanctification that we have by the grace of God changes the desires of our hearts. And by changing the desires of our heart, our behavior changes, like period, full stop. And though our behavior may not immediately or perfectly change, like we can all testify to that, our, our behavior, we don't follow Jesus all the time, our behavior does change. We, the more we, we look like Jesus, the more we act like Jesus, the more we look to Jesus, the more we act like Jesus. We stop seeking glory for ourselves and we start glorifying God. Sure, there, there are growing pains, Yes, sure, we might not always feel like God has made a real difference in the way that we live our lives, but rest assured, he has, and he will continue to do so. Um, one, of, one of my um, chief jobs at, at Northside, and it's something I've been doing for the last 10 years of my life, is, is youth ministry. So um, I, Jeff, our head pastor, made some point to say, he's like, Coleman's not our youth pastor. He's our assistant pastor who happens to do youth ministry. Um, so it's more, it's more full than that. But that's one of my main jobs is the youth ministry. I've been doing it for about 10 years. And one of the most common questions I've gotten through my 10-year my tenure as, as a youth, youth guy um, is, how can, I act, how can I know? How can I know that I'm really saved? How, how, how do you know? How can you be sure? Because they're looking at their lives, and their life may be in shambles, and they're you know, they're cheating on tests because that's, that's what they, they feel like they have to do to get the grades that they think they have to get. Or they're, they're you know, sleeping with their girlfriend or boyfriend. Or they're, they're doing other things that they just look at their lives and they're just like, I don't, I don't feel saved. I don't feel saved. How do, I, how do I know that I'm actually saved? And while I have a few standard responses to that, that question, my usual one begins with just asking them like, hey, do, do you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that he died for your sins? Like, do, do you believe that? And nine times out of ten, because, you know, they came to me, they came to their youth pastor and said, hey, how do I know? They say, well, yeah, yeah, I believe that. And then I just look at them and say, well, you're asking the question. You, you, you've answered your own question by asking the question. Like, you say you believe, you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, right? You, you believe this for yourself. It's not your parents' faith, but it's your faith. Um, and you asking, you asking, how could I know, shows me that your desire is to be saved. Your heart is after God. And that in and of itself is evidence that God is at work in you. Like our desires, our, our sorry, my Southern's coming out. Our desires shift from chasing after the passions of our own heart to chasing after our Savior, who alone can satisfy our souls. Um, the main way this plays out, ultimately, then, is, is linked directly to our obedience. Like, we do, ch- our, our, our behavior changes. We follow Christ more directly. Yes, um, I, I have those conversations with these students who are doing some terrible things, and I ask them, do you believe? And they say, yes. Well, you're asking great questions. So what are you doing on your Friday night? Our 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 the main way our own salvation plays out is by acting like it. But what God is getting at here, what, what God has ultimately done and what Peter says is the reason behind all of this is for our obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. 
So that's, that's a weird one. What, what does it mean that our election and our sanctification is for our obedience and for sprinkling with his blood? Well, Peter is using covenant language here, which is to say he's using family language. You see, the old covenant, it required blood. They, requ- they required sacrifices of lambs and goats and, and bulls and other things. And the new covenant, guess what? Requires blood. It required blood. Christ had to be sacrificed for our sin. But the question becomes, what, what does that covenant do ultimately? Well, it places us in the family of God. And then what is that fam- where is that family now as we live as sojourners on this earth? Where is that family most readily expressed? Right here. <laughs> on Sunday mornings when we come to worship. It's, it's most readily expressed in the church. And not just here, not just on Sunday mornings, but as we live our lives in community with one another. That's where we see it. That's where we feel it. All this covenant is the sprinkling of blood is ultimately Peter saying that you have been saved for God, for the glory of God, yes, for your own good, yes, but also so that you would go to church. How cool is that? And some of you here may be droopy-eyed because you stayed up a little late last night, and that's okay. But we, we, we thank the Lord that he, that, you, that he brought you here this morning. That he worked in your heart that he would bring you to this place where you would worship with him. Now, this is, um, this is something that we, we implicitly understand, but may struggle to put into words at times. But we instinctively follow this rule, and that is that we instinctively follow the rules of whatever community that we're in. Do we not? Like... It, it doesn't really matter what your morals are. It doesn't really matter if you have the world's biggest personality or not. If whatever community, community that you are in, if you spend enough time in that community, you will begin to follow its rules. Um, it's, it's kind of like how in you know, Nazi Germany, pre-World War II, um, Germany managed to convince just everyday you know, normal people to turn on their Jewish neighbors. The, the propaganda was beat over and over and over again, and, and people kept saying it over and over and over again, and, and good people began to turn on their neighbors. Maybe something a little less severe. I don't want to just invoke Hitler for an, for an analogy, but um, maybe like how Will Fargo's, Will Fargo employees, if you remember this scandal from a few years ago, found themselves signing up their own siblings, their parents, their grandparents uh, for credit cards and accounts without their permission. Sign their name um, just so that they, they could either keep their job or so they could maintain the numbers that they felt pressured to maintain. Or, or even in your family, right? You, you, Christmas, with Christmas behind us, there, there were undoubtedly some family rules that you, you felt you had to keep. And if you didn't keep those family rules, well, drama. <laughs> Maybe some, some weeping and gnashing of teeth, Right? Like you have to follow your family. But one of, my, one of my family's rules is on Thanksgiving Day, my mom may say, get here at 12. That means get there at 11. Because if you don't, she's calling you at 11. Where are you? Well, we're just leaving the house. What? Everyone's here ready to eat. No, no. You, it's, it's, it's this unwritten rule, this unwritten standard, and you have to keep it or else, you, or else there's a lot of drama and weeping and gnashing of teeth, and you find yourself constantly being pressured into that thing. But the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing is there's a flip side of that. The longer we spend in the community of God, 
the more time we spend in, 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 in the presence of God's people, worshiping with God's people, well, while the negative truth, so is the positive. It has a profound effect on who we are. Like God has saved us for a time, at least, has saved us for a community. He has saved us for his community. And how comforting is that to you, that we are not alone? Like It's, it's extremely comforting to me. I, I'm, I'm not alone. We, we aren't left alone because, one, God's Spirit is dwelling in us. We're not left alone because, two, God the Father, the Father is present with us. We are not alone because Christ, our Savior, sits at the right hand of God interceding for us. We are not alone because, as Hebrew puts it, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. We are not alone because we have family. And I know a lot of, a lot, a lot of people, it feels like, in Florida aren't, uh, aren't from Florida. And you may be hundreds of miles from your, your blood family right now. But you are not alone. Because you have a family that, that will never end. That will never, that will never cease. You will always, always, always have the family of the people sitting beside you. The family of God's family. And it's here where we come to the last part of this greeting. This is where Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May, gre- may, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And it would be easy to think that this is just Peter well-wishing. Happy New Year's, right? You know, God bless. You hang up the phone. You know, whatever, whatever it is, it, it, it'd, be, it'd be really easy to think that Peter's just well-wishing here, that he hopes that they have grace and peace. But it's, it's actually much more than that. You see, Peter understands they already have grace and peace. The rest of the letter literally details the grace and the peace that they have because of God. But what he's actually saying is you have grace and peace. Now may you have it in abundance. Now may, may it be multiplied to you. Like praise the Lord that he can pronounce over the church that is being uh, fiercely persecuted. Praise the Lord that he can, he can pronounce over the church that's being fiercely persecuted that God's grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that that same pronunciation, that same grace and peace can be then pronounced over us. Whether it's, whether your car broke down this morning, you can have God, you have God's grace and peace. Whether you, you're going to get fired tomorrow, you have God's grace and peace. Whether you just had your first child, your first grandchild, whether you had a great Christmas or a lousy Christmas, whether you, you're thinking you're going to have a great New Year or a terrible New Year, you have God's grace and peace. And it can be pronounced over us as well as these Gentile believers that God's grace and peace be multiplied to you, that you would have it in abundance. How wonderful is that? So I say to you as we bring in this new year, may God's grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you for this time um, and this word. Lord, I pray that anything that was said that's not right, Lord, that you would just... Let that let it go into in, in the minds of the of the believers here, Lord, and that um, that you would be glorified, um, that you would be known uh, from the preaching of your word, and we would latch on to to your words, um, and that our new year would be marked by grace and peace. So, no matter where we are as we sit here this morning, whether we went to bed early or we're trying we're trying our best to keep our eyes open, Lord, whatever it is, Lord. May we feel your grace and peace. May we know your love.
in our lives. Let us be changed by it. It is in your son's precious and holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.